If you're good at something, never do it for free. You're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. I bought you. <laughs> Welcome back. We are the Podfellas, and thanks for listening to our entertainment podcast. I'm Will, and joining me each week is Myron. Hello, Will. <laughs> this is a this little is a weird. Little, we're, we're flipping yeah, right? the tables here. Yeah. This is my first time. How many episodes have we done? 10? This is number 11? 17. Uh, number 18, actually. 18. Wow, yeah. I am... I apologize. I you, am just... You have the keys wow. to the car now, Will. You're driving, baby. <laughs> All right. Well, it's a rough start right now. So <laughs> uh, Each week, we will provide a film or TV review followed by a deeper dive into a related topic. Today, we will be reviewing Benny and Josh Safdie's last two films, Good Time and Uncut Gems. And we will also be discussing our top five film scores from the last decade, uh, from 2010 to 2019. And joining us today is a composer extraordinaire uh i'm super excited because he's also a great friend of mine uh it is julian cisneros welcome to the show julian oh thanks for having me guys so happy to be here yeah so we were we were just talking a little bit about uh this julian before we started recording but yeah we talked about how we uh, met at nab a couple years back and you were there doing some work for the red booth over there right yeah i had a film that i had done for them that they were basically just showing at their booth. They built some huge uh, theater literally at their booth. And they premiered this show. This It was like a short film called Eterna. And so they invited me out there. And I had never been to NAB. NAB is insane. I, uh, the music like alternative to NAB is called NAM, which is in Anaheim. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, is, that yeah. is huge. But <laughs> NAB is like that on steroids. So it was it was a treat to be there, and it's always fun to go to Vegas too, you know. Of course, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I met you up there, and I was so uh, I heard you you uh, score films and such, and so I was really wanting to uh, have another conversation with you about that. Unfortunately, it took a couple of years to have that. I know. But we're so happy to have you on. <laughs> I've always known you from uh, afar. Known you from I know. afar, you know, through through. <laughs> yeah. I always hear Will like, yeah, me and Myron are doing this. Me and Myron were doing that. So does it usually start out with, oh, do you know what Myron did this time? Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's agony. Like it starts with, yeah. I need to, I really need to talk. It's like one of those kind of yeah. conversations. Yeah, I need a friend. And it was like tears. He just does the whole, (laughs) you know, I call it the production vent, you know, after production, and you just have to like (laughs) vent to someone who gets it, you know. Uh, (laughs) Anyways, (laughs) so obviously, right now we're in this quarantine. What Uh, we are? (laughs) I haven't noticed. Oh, what? You haven't haven't heard the news? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something called like you know COVID nineteen, you know, oh. aka coronavirus, yeah, aka heard... Rona virus, aka <laughs> uh, I got the Rona. Got the know. Rona. Uh, yes. So just wanted to see how things are going for you guys, Myron. Uh, things have been going pretty well, actually. Um, as strange as it sounds, life has slowed down, and I thought that uh, that would be a bad thing, but it's actually been very, very good. I'm actually able to focus more on what is right in front of me at any given moment, which is you know, whether uh, something I'm working on or editing or just spending time with my son or my wife. Uh, it's been really good. Um, you know, I think the first couple of days were, were a little rough. I had like, I think like two or three little arguments with my wife the first day of quarantine. <laughs> but after that, it's been uh, smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think we are all, we were pretty much all getting a little uh, antsy. I remember yesterday uh, we had to make a target run. So my wife and I were like, okay, 
do you go? Do I go? Do we take our son? <laughs> and it was like this huge thing. <laughs> like, uh, you know, we're going out into the wilderness and we're, we're taking, you know, a, a big risk by going there. So eventually I went and one of the things she texted me and she was actually dead serious. She, she was like, uh, can you FaceTime with me while you're there so I can live vicariously through you? And oh my like, gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, are you serious? Wow. And she just sent me a, a, a frowning emoji. So I think she was serious. She was pretty <laughs> she serious. Legend situation yeah, going on or something. Yeah, man. But, well, what's funny though is that my friend uh, Tyler, he was actually saying like he thinks it's really good for the country to kind of take that step back, take a rest, really actually like have community and what it really means to that community, and just kind of like just basically stopping for a moment. And yeah. I thought, yeah, that that's true. There are some pros to it as well. Yeah, for sure. I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Julian? Julian? Uh, I think that kind of nails it on it for me. It's just like taking a second to hit the reset button. And uh, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what's happening right now in large for for my wife and I. Um, Luckily, both of our jobs are kind of, uh, I don't know, we could could both function online. So, um, and for me personally, my studio happens to be in a multifunction building that is like part of the building Part of what the people do here are uh, is considered essential. So the building isn't shut down, and because my studio has a door, its own door, um, and I don't have to see anyone, um, I, I just I'm able to keep coming into work. I actually was, I don't know if you remember, a couple weeks back in Orange County, they had like a, uh, they were basically shutting down the whole county, but there was a little miscommunication. But that night, I started moving my studio, only to get an email, oh, wow. only to get a text. Like, well, half of my car is packed. Uh, oh, uh, you guys can stay. Um, I guess uh, I guess we all misunderstood what the county was saying. So um, so I'm functioning as surprise, normal. Surprise, surprise. Um, yeah, like as far as business for me, I'm able to come in and keep working. My studio is only 10 minutes away from where I live. There's a little caveat to that, though, and that is it's just like mentally I feel like everyone else is going through so much, it's almost hard for me to get creative. and Because, you know, when you're, at least for me, being doing what I do kind of have to be like in a really great headspace. Um, yeah. I need to have kind of like a clear mind and, and like a good routine in the morning and then I can be creative and productive the whole day. But just because of everything going on around us, even like, you know, as soon as I wake up, I, I hop on the news to just be like, well, what's happened now, you know? And yeah. so I come to work kind of like, it's hard to get the engine running, you know, like, and just start doing things. So, I'm kind of, that's where I'm at right now as far as like transitioning and trying to figure out like if this is going to last for another month or two or longer. Um, I mean, how to Trump adjust. has said they're trying to, they're trying to uh, By Easter. have it basically end yeah. before Easter. Yeah. Right. So how realistic that is. Yeah. I don't, I, mean, <laughs> I don't really believe that. I, and he, even, I've even heard him say that like, uh, um, that's like him We're being opti- he's being opt- a great team doing a great job. Yeah, he's being optimistic, and I think he <laughs> knows, you know, whatever. I don't think it's going to happen. But, but I, as far optimistic? as uh, I, who who knows? I'm not a doctor, but I at least understand a little bit of math, and it seems like a lot of people are going to start <laughs> getting it, and a lot of people who had it weeks ago are getting it now. Those numbers are going through the roof, but all those people that had it walked around for about a week with it. Like mm. making everybody else feel, you know, baby catching it. So, who knows? But one of the things that I will say is, it's just like you know, being present at home is really great. And just like, I don't know, because my kids are home; they don't have, you know, their schools are shut down. 
and mm-hmm. my wife isn't traveling is what she she does a lot for work she travels so it really has like impacted like kind of just like Myron is saying just like focusing on what's in front of you and for that I'm I'm really happy and of course you have to make some adjustments there's definitely been uh you have to kind of pump up your patience a little bit every day otherwise mm-hmm. you might uh <laughs> Get into a fight that a more an, an unnecessary fight or whatever or get pissed at your kids yeah. so then julian you as a freelancer do you feel like that for you you're the exception where it hasn't hit you hard or has it hit you hard still in some way like well, how has it been so far yeah i mean because i'm in post and I'm at, I'm at the end of the line like you know i'm working on productions that were going on months ago so all those are kind of coming in now but I feel like there could be the possibility where in like two months, like I have nothing, you know, because all production mm. is stopping now. So at the moment, I'm actually very busy. Um, I just wrapped a trailer yesterday for uh, Chris Bricard's new film, Uner, which is about to oh, come out. Oh, another one. Nice. Yeah. And, and it was supposed to premiere at Tribeca. Um, but it just got canceled. So, um, but I, I, we wrapped the trailer. Um, they'll probably just, you know, release it online and try to get some momentum going there. But, and then today I'm hopping on a, another film for National Geographic. So, but you know, like Uner was shot last year, (laughs) the National Geographic film I'm working on right now was shot in January. So, you know, I'm still able to do things as normal on the schedule, but like I said, I think I could start becoming affected, um, you know, in a little bit. But I, I will say this: I did start changing gears uh, months ago, and the timing is also really kind of fortunate in that regard. Where I, I've, I over the last year or two, have just been asked by so many directors, like, "Do you have any music that I could just license?" You know, or, or I love this song. Can I license this song from you or whatever? Like, I can't hire you just right now for this project, but I want to use you, your music. And so I started building um, in January. Actually, yeah, yeah, in January, I started building a music library, like a full-on, fully functional, browsable, searchable, create playlists. You can um, download and license the song and pay for it straight through my website, like this website. So it's essentially like a music bed or marmoset or whatever, um, and so I'm, I'm about a, Julian Cisneros. Yeah, so I'm about I'm about <laughs> to I'm about like I'm like literally like a week or two away from dropping that. So That's in awesome. the in the meantime, I'm hoping that that could kind of bridge the time, you know, where maybe I'll have a lull. And it was kind of as a as a freelancer, you have lulls, you know, like yeah. So yeah. I think as a freelance, like freelancers are kind of used to feast or famine, you know. And so, mm-hmm. and we, and if you've kind of made it further along in that career, you know how to kind of prepare and kind of how to mentally handle that a little bit. Granted, like you guys are always in the field doing stuff, you know? So like, like Myron being like stuck at home and all of a sudden getting whiplash with cabin fever, like that makes a lot of sense, you know? Um, <laughs> because you guys are so used to just being out there and doing stuff. But at least for me on my end, like, you know, it's always just me in my studio. So 
I'm able to yeah. kind of make it through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you sent out a meme a little while ago where uh, it was like a, an editor working in his editing bay. And it was like before the quarantine, <laughs> after the quarantine. And it was the same guy in the same shot. And I think that is very applicable kind of to like what you're doing, Julian, what yeah. we do if we have stuff to edit. Yeah. It's a quarantine. No problem. I'm quarantined in my room anyway. You know? I've, been, I've been preparing this my entire life. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Everyone in post yeah. is. Yeah, dude, that's so yeah. funny. I didn't see that meme, but I could, I could imagine it. I think one of the best things for me to kind of have an outlet to, you know, keep my mind off of what's going on is to continue to be creative, uh, figuring out other ways to create content, regardless of pay. It's really just for me not to lose, um, my momentum, uh, and fuel of, um, the next thing that I want to be able to execute that can be applied to, you know, any general aspect of a project. So, Mm. um, it's always fun to be able to do like just you know be as an artist is to create in general so that's just been my outlet yeah that's a great point there just a quick look at some future episodes that we have coming up next week uh, we will be reviewing two of terrence malick's films first we'll be reviewing tree of life as well as his newest film that just got released on in demand a hidden life the week after (laughs) So, lots of lives so so so, so, so uh was it original i know <laughs> it's titles the the next uh um week we will be reviewing kingdom uh seasons one and two which is oh, something man. that i just started watching so i'm looking oh, forward to that man. so far so good and then the week after we will be reviewing onward uh the newest pixar film which is actually on demand right now and it will be available on streaming on disney plus within the next week or two yeah. and going along with a review onward we will be discussing our favorite pixar films and now heading into our first of two reviews uh, we will be going through uncut gems so here's a quick look at the trailer how you doing Holly? Right. how's it going hey, Howard. 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 all right larry you're a jew again welcome back <laughs> made a crazy risk to gamble and it's about to pay off so i want the celtics to cover i want the celtics halftime i want garnet points and rebounds what do you know i don't know i just know well i'll tell you what i know that's the dumbest fucking bet i ever heard of i disagree i disagree gary You're taking my money all over town, placing bets. I'm having very serious second thoughts. Are you serious right now? I know I fucked that. Howard, where's the money right now? Howard, got my money? All right, that was the trailer for Uncut Gems. Here's a brief synopsis. With his debts mounting and angry collectors closing in, a fast-talking New York City jeweler named Howard Ratner risks everything in hope of staying afloat and alive. Now, this movie was actually on my top 10 list. I watched it right before we recorded because I wanted to make sure that I gave it a view because I had a feeling that it would land somewhere on my list. Uh, I believe it came in at number six. Definitely one of the best of the year, um, and I believe... Of the two films that we're, that we're reviewing today, I believe this one was uh, slightly better uh, than Good Time. What I really enjoyed was Adam Sandler's 
performance. It's a portrait of a degenerate gambler. And watching him in this movie is, I said this, um, you know, when we did our top 10 review, it's like kind of driving, it's kind of like driving by a gruesome car accident on the freeway. Mm -hmm. You want to look away, but something inside you just wants to take in the damage and keep (laughs) looking. And uh, I thought a lot of the great, uh, a lot of the supporting actors were great. Uh, I love Lakeith Stanfield. I'll watch anything that he's in. Um, I remember before I saw this, I saw him in Knives Out. And before that, he was in um, Get Out. So seeing him here, almost unrecognizable, was really, really fun. And then, of course, Adina Menzel, uh, Elsa, as we all know her, plays yeah. the wife of uh, the wife of Adam Sandler's character here. And it's weird to see her in in this way, um, yeah. very very different than what we're used to seeing her as. And I thought it was a bit refreshing. Um, totally. Also, really really yeah, I know. Also, really great was kind of how he was like juggling chainsaws. It felt like where multiple things were happening. Where there were like two or three sets of debt collectors after him at any one time. He's trying to lie to keep his wife and kids at bay. There's a mistress that's also in the picture. And uh, of course, Kevin Garnett is also <laughs> floating around. And I actually thought he was pretty good. I don't know what you guys thought, but I thought yeah, he was great. Uh, I, I mean, I, yeah. was, I was surprised. I was surprised. Yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but do you know who was supposed to have played that role? It was Joel Embiid from the 76ers. Oh, wow. And do you yeah. know why he didn't? Was it just scheduling or? Yeah, scheduling. The movie got pushed into when the season started, so they had to opt for, for a retired NBA player, and uh, uh, he was available. And that's why they also set the movie in the past. It was actually supposed to have taken place now, which is very interesting. Yeah. Interesting. What year yeah. did it? Was it and, supposed to take place? Because I can't remember. The, the film? Oh, I think was, it was in was the... It, ever, it wasn't ever, like, said, right? It's just kind of, like, set in... Yeah. The synopsis is saying something like, set in 2015. Yeah. I think it, my guess is, what, 2009, 2010? Yeah, which is that kind makes of sense. Like, yeah. yeah, right when Garnett was still on the Celtics and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And uh, in terms of what I didn't like, um, I'm really nitpicking here. I wasn't a fan of Julia Fox's character at the beginning of the film. She uh, played uh, Sandler's uh, mistress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, she seemed very one dimensional, the typical uh, other girl. But then her character started to become more and more fleshed out right around the time when uh, Sandler uh, beat up the weekend and the club was when I was like, <laughs> okay, th- this is interesting. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and then uh, she really comes into her own by the end where she plays an integral part of Howard's plan to get out of the debt that he's in. Um, My favorite moment of of the film, and this movie is riddled with amazing moments. I love the moment outside of the school play where Howard gets uh, stripped (laughs) and left in the trunk (laughs) by a couple of the... man, uh, painful. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) And so he gets stripped and beat up, left in the trunk, and he calls his wife to come out and get him. And then when she does, of course, he's butt naked, and he has to put on like this weird, not very well-fitting outfit. And what's really funny is when his wife sees him, She's like, she kind of rolls her eyes. It's not like, what the hell happened to you? Or like, oh my God, are you okay? Yeah. But it's yeah. just like, oh, it's another Tuesday. For she knew Howard, it. Yeah. She yeah. knew yeah. exactly why he was in there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I, I really love that. And of course, the end climax where uh, his uh, pursuers are locked up and they're sitting in a, a room with Howard. And basically, he makes them watch as his final last play, which is a crazy parlay bet with all of these different um, factors involved to try to try to get out of debt. They, they're forced to have to watch as he's watching. And towards the end, it almost seems like they start to kind of root for him, which is hilarious. Yes. That was yeah. such a crazy scene, man. Like, yeah, if you just think I about know. the reality of that, and as you're watching it play out, 
And as I don't know if you guys were thinking this, but I'm just like, what are they going to do when they get out? That's all I kept yeah. thinking about. Like they're not because they got calm, right? You know. Yeah. Um, spoiler, but you know they get a little calm, and when they're in there, they're in there, and they're just biding the time. They're sweating because there's no airflow, and you're just sitting there thinking, like, dude, like this is going to be bad. Yeah, yeah, but it's weird. I think well, I forget how many people were locked up. At least two or three. There's of them. There's three of them. I, yeah. But I think they were actually, well, I know two were, I know one wasn't for sure, but I felt like they were really kind of cheering for him, which yeah. is kind of what I, I think Howard is this guy where he is just a like scum of the earth kind of guy, but he has this charm that can't, you can't help but like, like him or root for him. Even the people that were after him, I think felt that way. There was a scene with his wife where, um, I think she's been wanting to get divorced for a while and he's trying to oh, like, yeah. kind of push it off. Yeah. yeah. And he, and he tries to get her to smile. You know, and yep. no matter how much she hates his guts, she's still, he's so endearing. Yeah. She even expressed that. Yeah. Like your face is so annoying. Yeah. I hate looking yeah. at you. <laughs> I can't stand listening to your voice. Yeah. And yet but she's she, like, yeah. she's smiling. The, yeah. the look on and his it, face, like when he's even trying to tell her to do that, like he's got this little smile on his face and it's just yeah. so weasley, but so yeah. good. Yeah, oh, that's why yeah. he was it's so great in this. Super Weasley. That's like the perfect term of Adam Sandler's character. My gosh. Yeah. So stressful. Yeah, in terms of uh, deeper meanings for the for the film, um, I two things I came up with here: uh, degenerate behavior, if left unchecked, can become a rabbit hole to a whole lot of bad. Um, and to me, also, this movie is uh, somewhat symbolic of America. Uh, basically, we've built our riches by capitalizing on people less fortunate than ourselves, which is a, a clear theme in the movie, especially how the movie opens, where the opal that you know Sandler's trying to sell um, is kind of being pulled out of a of a mine in somewhere in Africa. Um, and at Ethiopia. the same yeah, Ethiopia. And at the same time, we maintain our wealth by creating a larger and larger illusion built by doubling down on nothing at all, which is, I think, kind of the state that America is in right now, and which makes me kind of scared that all of this might come crumbling down. But uh, that, that those are my thoughts. Julian, what did you think? Um, I have a lot of similar kind of sentiments towards this film as you do. Um, of course, I'm listening. We all listen through kind of our roles as a filmmaker, right? Um, mm. so as I'm listening to this, the first scene is the score. And this is something that I think the Sadfi brothers, it's, it seems to be something because they did the same thing with good time, but the score is just in your face and it's driving and it's just so loud and the audio makes itself. It is louder than the dialogue. It's louder than the, uh, Foley effects. And, I think that is one of the things I just that stands out instantly to me um, with Uncut Gems. Mm -hmm. um, the first scene, it's just him. They're introducing Adam Sandler's character with the music just being so in your face, and I, I love that. You know, kind of continuing down that line of what I love about the film. I just I do love the score. I think as a whole, the whole score itself, the style of the score is something I personally love. Just I also kind of live in that vein as a composer. Just heavily electronic and um, kind of just mm -hmm. using a lot of analog synths and stuff like that. And I had mm. uh, Daniel uh, Lopatin, um, if that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah. He's a big analog synth guy. So he used this one synth by Moog um, that it's called the Moog One. And I have a, a Moog myself. And so I they actually did a feature on him. So I, before I'd even seen the film, I had just been a fan of his. 
So um, just hearing that score, like just so perfectly tailored to that film and creating that anxiety, nonstop, relentless anxiety. That I mean, I think a lot of that is due also to the music, you know, and you just yeah. feel so stressed and you're never, there's no reprieve. And so I, I have to say that I loved, that's probably the, 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 the main thing I loved about that film. So what's the um, stage name again? What one o tricks point never? One, yeah, is one right? tricks. Yeah, I don't remember the last part. I haven't even really <laughs> listened to his music, to be honest. His like solo yeah. stuff. But so, I so love that his... synth you're that synth you're talking about. The Moog is that what kind of produces? Uh, to me, it sounded like like a eighties B movie kind yep. of sound. Yeah, but yet it sounded yeah. so like original and raw. Is that's what it is? Yeah. So he used that to create like the main, at least, if what he was saying was true because sometimes you could be like, you can make a sound with anything, but um, I think he used that synth to create like the main motif and the main like kind of theme for that. Um, and he's like using other pads or presets within that, that synth to create like kind of the underscore. So um, yeah, that synth is amazing. It's super versatile and it does give you the sound of the eighties or the sound of nineties or even modern crazy wavetable stuff. So um, yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> he, I think he's that's using, a, he's using, new. he's using yeah. a modern synth to create old sound. So I think that's what you're yeah. kind of you, gathering. Wow. You just, you just made this film so much more stressful for me as stressful <laughs> as it was. Already. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, like, I think that, um, another thing I just loved about the film is just the, just the roller coaster of what the experience was. Like, it was like a theme park ride, you know, like few films like take you on a ride like where literally afterwards you're physically feeling something you know i think few mm-hmm. films can tap into that they kind of set you up so well like good writing always sets you up and kind of like flushes out every character but in this particular movie even though they did that in most cases i just felt like i was on a freaking ride like i was i didn't know where it was going to turn it's like you're on space mountain where it's black inside Mm. And you can't see where the next turn's coming. And so I think for me, as right. and I, maybe this is just because I'm a composer, I, I so, you know, I, I, I kind of see through the lens of feeling. So to me, I just love those experiences, you know, the, the anxiety-inducing experience that this was. Um, yeah. yeah. But I think that also kind of, yeah. So, so I'll move on to the next thing, which is kind of like what I didn't like. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't buy Kevin Garnett's obsession with the Opal. I just thought that that was like kind of cheesy. That took me out of it for a sec. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. why would someone who's so successful, someone who's built like such a great career be so superstitious and think that after already being so successful, this Opal is all of a sudden going to make him successful. Like he's already successful. I just didn't really understand it. And mm. I thought that that was kind of a weak link in the film. Um, yeah. I didn't buy that, that makes sense. Yeah. I didn't buy that. He like had to have it so much so that he would go to the, um, can we talk about details of the film or are we kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I, I, I think we decided we're going to just lay it all out for this one. So no, no yeah. spoilers just are fine. Out there. Okay. Yes, okay. So like there. when he's at the, um, the auction, you know, it's like, would he really go to the auction by himself and like, get this to get this opal and then his girlfriend's like no no like you're, you're an idiot what are you thinking and he's just like i need this opal 
And I so that was kind of the weakest link in this film for me personally. I didn't I didn't really mm. like that. Yeah, I mean, I kind of bought it because I I enjoyed the way Garnett played it. The idea of a, of an athlete kind of you know oh I, I when I had it I, I played like this so I need it. So it, it uh, did feel slightly strained because of the fact that you know it the plot needed for him to have an obsession with the opal in order for it to move forward. And I, I do see that it was it might have been a little thin there. Yeah. yeah, I see. I see. So if they toned it down a little bit, then Julian, then you probably be like, okay, it's a little more believable. Like pull it back a little bit or something. Yeah, I think that's kind of, or it's hard because they needed a successful, famous, well-known basketball player to make it all work on the front end, right? Like everyone yeah. freaking out that he came into his shop. Oh my God, it's Kevin Garnett, you know? And Kevin, like, so like that was the thing that pushed this whole story forward. But then. At the same time, I think if it was on the back end as it's flushing out and he like needs this opal to be successful, I think a less known player seeing this as his route to success would have been possibly better. But again, oh, yeah. but again, it wouldn't have worked. That makes sense. It wouldn't have worked for setting it all up because you do need that huge star, you know, to make it kind of mm-hmm. to, to let it all just explode. Hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Got it. Got it. All right, favorite moments. There was one that really stuck out to me when I think about this film, and it was that scene where um, he basically had all the money. He got it from Garnett, right? He had that 150k, mm-hmm. and then in the other room was his brother-in-law, and then those two other dudes who are like already at the end of all their patience, right? They're like they're basically there to kill him. <laughs> he has the money to pay them off. And maybe some extra, I don't know how much he owed, but like maybe some extra to pay that other debt collector off for the ring. And, you know, it's like, but he at least could have like gotten out of it right then and there. And then Kevin Garnett kind of like hits his pride a little bit. And what did he ask him? I think it was like, I watched it a week ago, so I'm trying to remember. But he basically, Adam Sandler starts talking about how he's a pro. This is what he does. He's like, Garnett, you're a basketball player. This is what I do, uh-huh. right? Yeah. You guys remember that moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. In, the middle, in the middle of talking about what he does, he then gets the idea to do that freaking crazy bet. He's like, all right, now this is what we're going to do. Like he basically, as he's talking, the guy, like his freedom is in his hands. Yeah. He's, and, as he's, and then he just starts talking about who he is, what he does, then he's like gets the idea to make that major bet on Garnett. Yeah. Talks Garnett, gets Garnett all pumped up, gives yeah. him the opal, <laughs> and then calls his girl in. They run the freaking money across the window. Like that scene, though, to me was just like because because it, it's so well built up throughout the whole film that like this guy is just always always getting himself deeper and deeper. And then yeah. here is that reprieve that I've been dying for yeah. for an hour and a half, like. All right, he's going to be free and clear. He's going to live. And then all of a sudden, there's that f- he just gets that freaking idea and then he just goes <laughs> even deeper, like deeper than he had been the entire time. Oh, I'm stressed. I thought that was that was such good writing. Yeah. I thought yeah. that that was like just phenomenal writing. Like yeah. they and the acting like cuz he just the way that the idea came into his brain, like you're there like listening to him as if you're Garnett hearing yeah. him talk about what he does. And then you just start to see this like little change as he's getting the idea. Like literally, if you wa- I, if I watch the scene again, like he gets this little, he does something that like indicates that he has this new idea. Yeah. And yeah. I thought that was, so it's like, I think the best acting moment of the whole film, 
or that's hard to say. One of the top moments of the whole film as far as acting yeah. for Adam Sandler. You know what I think it is is uh you know whenever people go to Vegas something changes in the wiring of their brains where it's, people don't think rationally anymore. Where it's <laughs> like, you know, like you win money but you're most likely going to give it all back because it's like you're just not thinking right while you're there and then right. when people leave Vegas you're like, "Oh, okay. Uh that was a good vacation. My wiring got a little messed up and now back to the real world." But I think for this guy every day is like Vegas. His wiring at some point got completely like severed and he just doesn't think right you know so yeah it, it's insane <laughs> to see someone like that and, and the, that whole scene you talked about what i thought was so amazing is that garnet at first was like you're insane dude you're you're crazy oh yeah but he started yep. to drink the kool-aid a little bit and kind of started oh, yeah. to buy into it which is what i think he that's the kind of guy howard is he has this like yep. infectious nature where you, you're gonna think he's crazy but you're going to kind of go along with it, you know? But yeah, right. I thought that was a great scene. But you have to also remember, yeah, that's he like, also pointed that out. He, he before even Garnett called about the Opal after the, after the auction, he was just crying in his office and yeah. telling his mistress, like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> uh, everything's going wrong. Yeah. And I'm just like, no shiz. Everything's going wrong with you. Do you have a problem? And, and then so, he gets the money in his hand and it's like, Oh, yeah. I'm good. Yeah. She's so like, good. I could make some more money with this money. <laughs> yeah. But no, you're right. Like, that's kind of the, and I didn't really even consider or link the two, like, the the genius of Howard, the, the brilliance of the character Howard is that, as those two scenes where he's trying to get his wife back, make her smile, and then the scene where he freaking can talk to Kevin Garnett, like, these people who are walking away, they're done, and they're happy to leave you. Somehow he wraps him back in. And that yeah. to me is such great writing because we're talking about a fictional character here as if we kind of understand him yeah. and understand his psychology. Yeah. So Absolutely. hats off to the Sadfi brothers there. Definitely. Um, I think that was probably what surprised me the most, honestly, was just Adam Sandler's acting. I think, I mean, I, I love his dramatic roles. The Myrich stories was great. And Punch Truck Love, of course, is great. I mean... There's a handful of his comedies, which are just some of the top comedies that have literally shaped my childhood and, and me as an adult. Um, but his acting in this film, just like I, I look at him differently now. Yeah, you he's know? On, he was whatever on fire. movie he, whatever movie he does next, I'm just gonna see that guy Howard. Like you know, it's just yeah. like <laughs> unmatched, really, as far as the rest of his career. Yes. And um, yeah, so and then just to kind of cap it off deeper meanings messages <laughs> i just wrote in caps uh, to myself uh, don't gamble all right <laughs> just don't not worth it but myron hearing you uh kind of explain what you were saying that you got from it i those are very insightful things to pull pull away from it that i think i got as you know that i i totally see being valuable um lessons to learn yeah and i think that's something the sad free brothers or safety brothers um are really good at they're they're kind of making these like like you know we're, we're, we listen to fairy tales and what's the moral of the story as you're growing up like they're kind of writing these like incredibly dynamic complex almost morality tales. fairy tales yeah. yeah morality tales where they're they just like really sink into this like one like mental handicap yeah or something like that you know and yeah. so i think um yeah always watching yourself and making sure you <laughs> just don't be Howard, dude. I mean, yeah. geez, Louise. 
<laughs> I, I mean, that's, coming, that's, yeah. coming from someone that does like to, you know, make a few bets here and there, I, I think, um, not to inject too much politics into what we're talking about, but I think one of the worst things that could happen to America is if sports betting is legalized across the country and you yeah. can win or lose money with just a few clicks on your phone. That, that idea is just insane. And yes, I do know a Howard or two in my life. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I knew a, I knew a Howard when I was younger in high school. He w- yeah. we had like this whole poker thing going on when we were like my senior year, and this guy would clean house and he'd make so much money and then he'd lose it and then yeah. he'd go straight back to making it. And then he hit up Vegas. He started doing Vegas, and it ruined him. He went broke. He's changed his life now. He doesn't touch it anymore. But wow, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Oh man. All right. And so it's glad to. I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed this film. Uh, well, what did you think about this movie? Literally, this film was a roller coaster, as you said, Julian, but on tracks with loose bolts. Like, I have never felt so much stress and frustration about the life of an addictive and compulsive gambler. Um, <laughs> if this is what, and, and I, and, and if this is what the Safety Buds wanted, wanted, then they have accomplished their goal and then some. I think that. The cadence of the filming, from the acting, cinematography, editing, directing, composing, it all works so fluidly together, and it made you keep you at the edge of your seat. Like, he never took a freaking breath in this whole performance. I feel no. like I, I, he didn't let me breathe, like, to, to be mm. able to kind of, like, have him slow down with just his character. Kevin Garnett, as we said, also surprised me with his performance, even though he was playing himself. Job well done, you know? I mean, yeah overall like there wasn't anything that i didn't like from the film it was just more about how i didn't like how uncomfortable i was with the whole story (laughs) i just didn't like how i was feeling i was like i don't know this is not cool i don't like this can we uh i can't stop watching i gotta finish it though stop you know i mean (laughs) you know your uh your uh example of riding a roller coaster where the on the tracks with the the bolts are loose it's a perfect analogy for this film well yeah it's like you know i don't know if i'm gonna live or die watching this it's just yeah oh my gosh so crazy i think even like the even for favorite moments it wasn't anything particular that stood out because it was just the overall film film it, it, the overall film fell into being one great piece I, I have to say i think the one thing i can say is that the film it, it did resonate similar to um you know our next film that we're going to we're going to review good time uh where both pattinson's character and sandler's character are pathological liars and and yeah. and how freaking good they were at it like i was convinced just the way how their momentum they're they're not letting you breathe and trying to convince you about something like it was so enthralling i was like what the frick like holy crap okay fine here's my money take my money kind of thing you know it was like one of those when you go to like those flea markets and you have to bargain and people are trying to tell you buy this buy this buy this you're like i have to buy it i have to buy it like they're just so good they're just so good at that and what can i say but the ending completely was a what the f moment for me literally my mind i was like what the fudge and and it took it even further which was sad, uh, which was not just for Sandler's character, but the, the guy that was coming after Sandler that he was indebted to, that one was just a mind F, dude. It was just, what the frick? 
Okay, and so we we talked about how we're going to discuss spoilers here. Now, sure. Uh, you're talking about the ending. Uh, you said you, it was a WTF moment. Was it the right way to end this movie, in your opinion? I think if case in point of how I felt about it, and if that's what the safety brothers were trying to do, then completely yes. But regardless, it, it, it shook me. It, it was a great ending for me. The way it ended was like, for me, I wasn't expecting it to to a certain extent, but it did, and 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 I was just like, yeah, I was speechless. I, I was literally speechless, and I thought, yep. It got to the point where I realized that he he finally won, but yet he still got screwed over, kind of thing. You know, it was just like it kind of just showed his life that, like, dude, that you have. You have no luck in life. You yeah. Know? So what Will is referring to, and if you don't want to know how this movie ends, I would stop listening right now and jump ahead maybe five minutes or so, is basically he wins his last bet, and he all of his debts can be paid off now. Yep. But then his pursuers, he F's with them way too many times, and one of them just puts a bullet in his head. Done. <laughs> but he dies with a smile on his face, which I think was a fitting ending to the film. Was it a right? smile, though, or was yeah. it just his overbite? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just a smile. His face. Was so, so how did you look? What did you think of the ending, Julian? Was it, did you like it? Was it the right ending? It's a great question. I think that um, I honestly think it was fitting because of what he pushed those people to do or, yeah. or made them do or i mean like when you keep someone like that literally a prisoner and they're carrying something a gun like that and they it, it just like true whatever gangsters the hugs like the, those guys just it makes perfect sense mm. yeah now i wish that he didn't because he i mean his you could obviously tell that in that two things happened in that in that uh when they're the people that were trapped in that little room he had one of them getting filled more and more with rage to the point where he's going to murder him. And then he had the other guy, his brother-in-law, all of a sudden, like, starting to root for him, as you were mentioning. And then all of a sudden, he's like, he did it. Oh, my God, he did it. And he's actually relieved because he's like, okay, cool. Like, this, we can put this behind us, you know? Yeah. So he comes out thinking, you did it. And then, pop, pop boom, yeah. dead. Done. And then he's like, what did you do? And then instantly, as soon as he said that, he knew, oh, God, I'm dead now. And you could see him trying to get out, and then he gets popped yeah. too. So for those I of you who are listening, that. I did you know, not expect that. Yeah, I did, I did not expect that what either. The hell? But that was a true tragedy. But it all makes sense. Like if you're thinking about being in that situation, that's how it go down. Do you think, for lack yeah. of a better word, it was like a beautiful tragedy, Julian? Was it just like wow, <laughs> poetic justice? Poetic um, justice. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think it is what it is. I can't. Yeah, I think because I'm. Uh, it's like if you write, if you're, if I was writing, and I got to that that point, if I let him live, I think I do a disservice to the reality I've created. Exactly. So it's yeah. there's no other way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Because yeah. I, I would imagine if he survived this, that a year from now he would be in the exact same situation. And there was a couple of times where he proved that he was irredeemable and that he is not, this isn't the kind of movie where the protagonist goes through a dramatic character arc, you know, it, it was no. only going to end one way. Even if he got out of it, he would have been in the same position. And I, I think it was the right ending. That well, also re for me. Remember though, he also had another debt that he had to repay, but he's dead. Yeah. 
So yes. <laughs> that one's kind of left up in the air now. So yeah. that's it's just everyone's just screwed, <laughs> basic screwed yeah. over. <laughs> um, deeper message meanings going with what you two both said because it was just that. I mean, I I, I have a... Uh, a kind of a personal connection with it because you know um i have like you know family uh members who have been uh, addicted gamblers but you know and so it kind of it, it did rock me in, a, in 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 a way and and just kind of reinforced my mentality of like never getting to that point i mean it's just it's not worth it you know what i mean it's not worth right. it especially when you have family and and you have just all those risks and such, you know, of 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 what you're putting at hand. I mean, like even even when you look at Adam Sandler, um, when he was when Howard was in uh, his house watching the Celtics game, when he put the first bet down, and and his wife, you know, was there with him, and she was watching a different show, like or or, or when she asked him, "Hey, can you put your child, your son, to bed?" and he would not take his eyes off the TV of the game. It was just like I know, like you know, don't be a degenerate gambler. Don't don't find yourself digging yourself in a deeper hole. Realize there's just more to life, and and just yeah. um, that it's not worth it. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, there are so many other moments that I wanted to talk about, um, but to keep things short, um, in terms of our podcast. Um, you know, oh man, there's so many great scenes where it's just little there's touches. So is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's like a scene where uh, uh, he's like, it, there, there's like a closet in his house with like all these little like action figures and toys in it, and he's like got this little TV in the corner and no chairs, so you know that's probably where he goes to like scream at the TV so his kids don't yeah. see it. And then you see his son's reaction; it's like his son's gonna grow up just to be just like his dad, and oh, it's like something that exactly we see from my life. Like yeah. yeah. So many great moments. Um, but, you know, I think uh, this is a good point, at least, to go ahead and kind of cap off this review uh, by letting our listeners know what our final rev- uh, ratings are of this movie. So, uh, Julian, would you like to go first? Yeah, I um, I gave it a four. And the reason I gave it a four was, uh, I don't know. It's just a, it's it's just such a good movie. I, I I'm trying to think now it's not perfect but the four is really kind of just what made sense to me yeah so yeah yeah i'll I think, leave it at that <laughs> oh yeah and i think uh you know anyone who's seen the movie will definitely agree with you uh myself i give it a four as well i think the safety brothers succeed once again in my opinion they succeed in a, in a far greater fashion here than they did with good time and uh, I think this is this film is an adrenaline rush and a feel good film for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I have to admit, I'm like, no, please don't make that bet. Oh, he made the bet. Oh my gosh, he won the bet. And it's like, oh, he's dead. <laughs> but anyway, the, I think there's a lot of deeper meanings in terms of capitalism and, and what we're doing with our economy. But um, yeah, that's why I give it a four. How about yourself, Will? I, I also give it a four. I give it a four because I think it comprised of all the right elements um and and it was basically pretty near perfect balance of the the just just where the story was going what they want what the safety brothers are trying to execute at least to to my knowledge and 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 the characters i mean i'm like invested it, it was just, they did that and and they did that for me and i yeah. that's why like i thought they did a great job because the moment i break away from that the moment i'm if if something like technical um if something technical uh happens where it breaks away from the film then then that for some reason it that that will hurt the film for me more in a sense but this didn't really do that 
And so, yeah, it, it was just a well investment. Well, great. job well done. So Great, great, great. All right, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back with our review of Good Time, also directed by the Safdie brothers. Stay tuned. Next. You're incredible. Do you understand? Yeah. I'm serious. You think I could have done that without you standing next to me being strong? Are you feeling this? Are you feeling the I'm feeling right now? Yeah, I'm cold. You're cold? Yeah. Let's get to Virginia, man. Just keep your head now. Turn around. He's all right. We didn't do it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Get back here. So I told you about my brother, yeah? Something happened. I don't know exactly what. He's been arrested. He's being held at Rikers Island. Love. Oh my God, that's awful. Make me queen. You just gotta get him out of there before something bad happens. He could get killed in there. The pure from love. You need another 10 grand. You get another 10 grand, your brother will get out. All right, what you just heard was a trailer for the film Good Time, starring Robert Pattinson, also directed by the Safdie brothers. Here's a quick synopsis. After a, after a botched bank robbery lands his younger brother in prison, Connie Nikas embarks on a twisted odyssey through New York's underworld to get his brother out of jail. Now, I know, Will, that uh, these two films were your first introduction to the type of raw anxiety that a Safdie Brothers film can produce. <laughs> yeah. We just talked about Uncut Gems. Did Good Time produce that same level of anxiety for you? I would say, yeah. I, but, uh, I think the only difference would be that I, I really enjoyed how... Uh, this film didn't waste time in dropping the audience straight into the situation, you know, which began to unravel aggressively. Like, uh, because this is obviously an earlier one, one of the earlier films, you kind of see the contrast of how they've kind of slowed it down with Uncut Gems to build up, build this up. But with Good Time, man, they just threw me right in. And the untamed energy of the brothers, played by Pattinson and Safdie, like they demonstrated just an amazing performance, primarily their chemistry resulting in building up a catalyst of one thing going wrong after another. And that also was making me hold my breath as well. Um, as an indie film, I have to say that it's up there now in my top 20 because they took a simple everyday scenario story of petty thieves living in hard times and putting you up in the midst of that struggle. And you can't help at moments, but to sympathize with them, especially Nick who is disabled played by Benny Safdie, who I was like, what in the world? Like, these guys, <laughs> what can they not do? Um, this was such a well-constructed crime thriller where all the technical aspects is from the cinematography, the editing, directing, it just came together very cohesively. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was so raw. There wasn't much I disliked about it, but only certain areas where the logic was skewed. Like the two that stood out was the hospital scene where Connie, played by Pattinson, he, he tries to get his brother out of um, out by breaking the side rail of the hospital bed and then ending up without the side rail, which looks to be attached to the loop of the side rail of the hospital bed. Because like, I was like, wait, where's, where's the side rail? That, that, that handcuff was right on there. So yeah. um, the second was the amount of acid drug acid poured <laughs> into the into security, security. guard's <laughs> mouth by and that yeah that was played by uh barcard abdi yes, and i'm I the was, captain now yes i'm the captain now uh i'm for certain that he would have been dead for sure yeah because i that think was his head would have exploded that yeah. was a lot of acid um <laughs> 
my favorite honest my favorite moment was the opening act man i just could not take my eyes off of nick and how magnetic his performance was i think right off the bat i felt that there was some issue with his disposition and as he was being asked very simple questions it came through so honestly like the close-ups of, of just his face uh and of of, of uh benny uh safety like like dude he 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 did so well like just 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 playing this off-putting character this character that has a disability um i was i was just engaged i mean another favorite moment too was like basically going back to uncut gems with 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 adam sam's character connie who's played by pattinson every moment that he conjures up a lie so quickly and so convincingly like it, it it was just interesting to watch like pathological liars are fascinating to look to to just look at and just be like wow like like i remember watching when i watch um i've seen the interviews i don't know you guys have you ever seen interviews with charles manson when he's in jail and they're trying to break him down and saying why did you like you know you did this or whatever and then he would just throw out these random stories but somehow cohesively put them together and just like you can't help but to think wow like maybe he isn't maybe he is telling the truth or whatever i don't know it's just it's so manipulative but it's crazy just the power of that kind of you know ability to have that and i think that with pattinson he just did that very well um yeah, his ability to lie here, I have to say he is a terrible thief, but he's a, a pretty good liar yeah. in terms of, yeah, improvising stories yeah. to, yeah. In the hospital, when he goes back to the, the, yeah. the police, he's like, hey, man, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, I'm just, my dad's in the hospital in the other room, and, you know, he's going, he has cancer, and I'm just like, where is this coming from? Like, what the frick? Like, this trying to, like, like get this cop, like, to, you know, just connect with this cop out of nowhere, and, and, and trying to, like, I was like, what the heck is going on? I mean... Basically, this leads me to what, Myron, you have been trying to convince me for some time. And I will officially and clearly say that Robert Pattinson's performance impressed me beyond what I believed was limited to Twilight. And it left... Yeah. It, oh, he's been trying hard to break out of that. Dude, and he's yeah. succeeding. Dude, yes. Oh, yeah. Dude. It left my mind looking forward to more of what he can do as an actor. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it was it was crazy. Um a brother who loves his brother, but is completely blinded by his selfishness and ignorant desperation. It, it, it's it's so disheartening, you know. That, that like it's like he loved his brother and he got him in this mess and he's trying to get him out of this mess. But he has to, like, uh, I get it. It's hard times and 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 you do whatever thing, anything whatever to to survive. But I don't know. Like to me, that was just just disheartening to use his brother who who has a disability and and just putting him through that and that kind of situation it's so wrong i don't know it's yeah. just it's so wrong on so many levels so he what he does in this movie is some of the stuff he does is really abhorrent it's terrible super, it's like despicable super, at the same time his love for his brother i think is his only redeeming quality at the same time mm. that love is also kind of questioned right from the get-go because here he is putting his brother in these situations that they shouldn't even be in so it's a very interesting conundrum that that the safety brothers paint like, here it's like his selfishness of success and wanting money and things that he wants comes first and then his brother comes second mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but yeah. like how close of a second but he's still yeah 
I was just gonna say, but he still has like it's almost equal. Like his yeah. brother taking care of his brother is number one because mm. since from childhood they've had to survive, and he's had to take care of his disabled brother. Mm. But then, as in that survival, he's learned it. It shaped him into who he is, uh, just a brilliant survivor, looking for money, looking yeah. whatever. But it's like I think they're equal. Yeah. You know, mm. interesting. Nice. Yeah, I like how you put that. Yeah. Well, I mean, on that, Julian. <laughs> That was my review. Please. <laughs> should, I, my ch- should I chime in now? Chime yeah, in, brother. Um, well, I, you know, again, I, I always watch a movie through the lens of being a composer. And um, so, and, and there's all these little things that I just noticed. And so Good Time was the first Sad, Sad Fee Brothers film I, I watched. And um, what struck me was, again, just the, the music, the, the audio mix itself, where the music is just so loud and so in your face so there's that intro scene that you're talking about where benny's getting questioned and you almost see him like kind of like being receptive to the um therapy that is i don't know if that's his parole officer or whoever his psychiatrist who knows yeah psychiatrist like he's like actually kind of like breaking through to him and then his brother runs in and he's like let's go let's go and then all of a sudden you know, then there's the bank robbery, but from that whole moment, the the music is so loud and just so perfect again. Wow! And so I just love love how the music again is such a driving force in this film. And um, from my point of view, it's just so every scene is just so perfectly executed. And I kind of turn my brain off to the score and just like watch it as like a viewer. And what I'll do is. At the end of a big scene, once it's uh, you know, where once you can take a breath, I'll then notice. Oh my God, that score was incredible. Mm. That that whole scene was so well, you know, composed. And I think that's the best part is where like the music you can like ignore the music and you're just so like you know entranced by the scene, but only to realize later that the music played such a huge part Mm. in that. Yeah. And I really I really appreciated that about this film and and it's so similar. These two films are very similar in that regard mm. from a musical standpoint, a genre standpoint and the audio mix. They're just so clearly intentional about making sure the music is pushing you and creating and it's almost like like when when you're having a hard time to listen to what the people are saying cuz the music's so loud, that's doing something in you as well. Like you're like all of a sudden like wait, what what's happening here? Like you're getting frustrated because you can't hear what's happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the effect they're trying to create. Um, And I think the, just kind of what you were saying, what we were saying earlier, just the the bond between the brothers, I thought that was just so strong and so well, it's just so believable. I think it's just such great writing, how they just, that opening scene was maybe the best way to describe who each brother was to each mm. other. Mm. Very true. And you had this brother who was disabled, kind of open to help, you know? He's just kind of like a, you know, whoever's going, <laughs> he's kind of whoever he's around, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And and because, like, in that moment, he was, like, breaking and kind of realizing, oh, like, well, yeah, my, my grandma used to hit me or something like that. I'm trying to remember. I don't know if he said his grandma hit him, but um, he was just opening up, and then all of a sudden his brother takes him, and he's like, now I'm a bank robber. Okay, so I'm gonna be a bank robber, and then he's in prison. So now I'm a freaking prisoner, and I'm and he just plays ball. It's like he just doesn't care. Like, but he's just whoever he is around. He gets jumped, dude, and he gets beat to a pulp. Yeah, and so you're just like, but he's still there, and and so um, 
I thought that, you know, just the bond between the brothers, the characters were so strong. And then once the brothers kind of reunite, actually, they never reunite, but, um, oh, that's very interesting. Huh. It's interesting to like reflect on the film yeah. and kind of think of them together, such a bond, but they're not really from the beginning. Yeah. They weren't together the entire film. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I didn't like, um, I kind of, I wasn't a big fan of, uh, the character that that Pattinson broke out of prison. Oh, yeah, I just yeah. didn't believe. I again, I kind of didn't buy that he would just really stick around, you know, the way he did, and just be so chill when he realized that he was broken out of prison. He just wakes up in some strange person's house. I don't know. That's just me though, being kind of picky. Mm. Um, I was, you know, I remember having those thoughts when I was watching it, but I kind of quickly like dismissed those thoughts and just was like, I'm just going to stay in the, the film. And then the rest of the film is such a great ride that it's like, who cares, you know? Mm-hmm. That's just me trying to really think about, kind of poke at. Yeah. Um, but I will say, like, my favorite moment, um, if you guys recall, once he's arrested, once Pattinson's finally arrested, and he's in the car, he gets put in the back of the cop car, and the cop car starts driving away. There's this slow pan in on Pattinson's face, mm-hmm. and Pattinson's just sitting there, almost reflecting on the last 24 hours, and calculating how he's going to survive yeah. wherever he's headed. Mm-hmm. Like, like yeah. it was just this like, if you it, it, it struck me so so much. I went back and watched it again because his acting is just so so incredible, um, and I thought that was just great a great you know. A great scene, the best way to end that film. And um, that's certainly my favorite moment, I think. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, and Pattinson, my wife's been telling me for like a couple of years that he's like one of her favorite actors. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, <laughs> Pattinson, that like freaking vampire from Twilight. Like, I hate those movies. Um, but she's slowly been showing me why. And after Good Time, I was just. I think that was his breakout role that changed everything. Um, he is certainly some a force to be reckoned with, and uh, I'm actually excited he's going to be the Batman. Mm. Me too. Um, yeah. What about that accent too? Right, that Jersey or or that East Coast accent that he was pulling off? Holy yeah, crap! Yeah, phenomenal, right? Yeah. I mean, like we could do a whole review of just his acting. You know, it's just so good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what's funny is uh, as you're watching this film, he's so used to reacting so quickly under really bad situations that you almost think that this whole bank robbery gone wrong, that it may or may not be like the worst situation he's ever been in, which is kind of shocking. <laughs> like he's just so used to having stuff fall apart and he's so used to weaseling his way out, which is why I think that uh, your your uh, explanation about that last scene with his, with his face mm. is so true. He's like, oh, well, I just got to get out of this thing now. <laughs> treated like how i just got out of the last 24 hours you know yeah that's a great observation like, uh, yeah and j- just to kudos to pattinson just like how that's communicated just from his face yeah you know no words and like again it goes to the writing when you know a character so well you can it, it gives the actor the ability to act and for people to get what they're what they're doing with their face like that you know we already know that this guy can get out of any situation. He's always calculating. So you just, it was just so great. Um, yeah. And as far as like deep, deeper meaning, I think that 
one thing that does stand out to me is just that bond that is kind of created in uh, kind of dysfunction, you know, mm-hmm. like they they form such a unique bond and they're so kind of twisted and messed up because of their of not having their parents. And I'm not really understand. You know, we don't know too much about their upbringing with their grandma, but we do know that they were raised poor and they were didn't have parents. Their grandma might not have been the best caretaker. Um, but they were just left to survive on their own. And so that bond is is very evident. And I think that kind of something I can take away from is just like no matter what, like when you're in whoever you have to survive with becomes, you know, your your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point there. All right. I think I'll um, go on with my review then. What I love in this film, I love the pacing. Um, I love that the main character is a thief that doesn't have everything planned out and doesn't know all the angles. He's like the anti uh, Daniel Ocean in that sense. <laughs> He's just like, oh, I'm going to rob a bank today with nothing planned, and we'll just see what happens. Uh, and uh, I think the the fact that he doesn't know what he's doing is the main source of conflict and anxiety. It's like throwing a guy in, in the ocean and seeing if he'll learn to swim swim or not is kind of what I feel like we're looking at <laughs> when, when we Great first see him. Yeah. yeah. I, I love, love, love Rob Pattinson in this film. Um, his character, to say that he's extremely flawed is uh, an understatement. I, I would go so far as to say he's unintelligent, <laughs> has no moral compass, and doesn't yeah. plan ahead at all. Mm-hmm. Yet he goes for it uh, and figures it out, and that somehow makes him likable. What I also really love was the color palette of this movie. I, I wouldn't say yeah. that it has a strong uh, lean towards one scene or one color palette or the other, but rather every scene seemed to have like its own strong sense of color. Like that scene where um, he uh, goes to the bail bondsman um, to try to uh, bail his brother out. It's like the whole scene is covered in magenta or there are other scenes that are completely covered in red where there's all this red light right. coming in. Mm-hmm. And it was just so amazing to be able to see like, a movie completely change and shift colors like that from scene to scene to scene. Um, I really, really love that. And I felt like the color of the scenes as well as the, the pacing of the editing combined with, uh, you mentioned to Julian, the, the score, um, the way it, how it was loud and how it really drove the movie, those items all came together to create some sort of like perfect synchronous, uh, look at like chaos happening, you know, and, and I thought that was really, really cool. Um, mm. What I didn't like, as much as it, this may sound confusing, as much as I love Rob Pattinson, I hated the main character. Uh, I kept thinking, man, this Connie guy, he is so stupid. Oh, my gosh. What are you doing now? Oh, my <laughs> gosh. You, you, you did what? You, you broke a guy out of a hospital and you didn't realize it wasn't your brother? And, you know, seeing his face, it was all bandaged up. We get it. But it's like... Th- like in movies we don't see main characters act so stupidly and it is at the same time refreshing and at the same time completely like maddening and i thought (laughs) um that was really interesting and the thing that i noticed from watching this movie again is i think the safety brothers they have a way of taking your preconceived notion of who the actor is and what your thoughts are when you see them in a movie and he kind of uses that to their advantage 
and they kind of completely put it on its head. For example, Adam Sandler's the funny guy, but what if he was just as charming, but now he's a degenerate gambler? Or in this <laughs> movie, we're going to take the best looking, most like loved guy, uh, uh, you know, in, in from this Twilight series that made kajillions of dollars and is loved by women, uh, all women all over the planet, and we're going to make him into some dirty, ugly, moralist character. And the only reason you're even going to be able to get through it and bear with this terrible person is because he looks like Rob Pattinson. You know, I think if <laughs> any other person played this guy, uh, it would have been completely unwatchable. I might have just turned it off in 30 minutes just because I hated Possibly. the guy so much. Yeah. Yeah. But because he was so good, it, it, I mean, here I am. I'm supposed to be talking about what I didn't like, but I'm kind of going back to how awesome Rob Pattinson was. <laughs> but, um, like I hated his character, but yeah. I love how he character. did it. Yeah. 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 But I will say for sure, the plot got really convoluted towards the end. And there was a lot of things um, happening. You know, that whole deus ex machina idea of like, okay, um, this character has like the solution dropped into their lap and it wasn't really earned. So that whole idea that they're able to, that he's going to be able to come up with a, a certain sum of money um, because the guy that he accidentally broke out of a hospital has like a bottle of LSD hiding out at an amusement park. And it just, it, it all happened too conveniently. Um, and it felt like a, like a massive plot contrivance, but at the same time, I just went with it. Um, and also yeah. just the, the last scenes at, at the Adventureland amusement park, it added to some great visuals, but I kind of felt myself rolling my eyes a little bit at seeing yet another, um, you know, climax happen inside of an abandoned amusement park, mm -hmm. even though it looked great. But these are just small things that I just went with anyway, because the movie was so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and other than that, uh, my favorite moment, I agree with Will's, the entire opening sequence. I think that, you know, if the Safdie brothers continue on their path, I think the, the adjective Safdie-esque is going to become like a thing. Safdie-esque. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Or it's just like multiple factors happening all at the same time. Everything is going wrong with like, you know, the, this, the soundtrack and going and it's, and your heartbeat is up. I think that all can be considered something that, you know, might be a thing, you know, Safdie-esque. But when the paint explodes on the money and they're trying to wash it off in a Domino's public restroom, um, and then, you know, of course, Benny gets <laughs> captured, it's too good. It's so good. Oh, my gosh. So good. Yeah. Uh, what surprised me, obviously, Arpat for the win. And I, I knew after Will watched this movie that he would um, love Robert Pattinson. We, it was the first episode we ever recorded, Will, where we were joking about our Pat as the new Batman. And I said, watch Good Time and you'll change your, you'll change your mind on him. Yes, so, Aaron, yeah. you were correct. You were so <laughs> right. I'm always correct. With you, sir. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, um, yep. Yeah, so that is my review of the film. Um, so closing things out with a review of Good Time, I'd like to ask you guys what your final review was, starting with you, Will. I gave it a three and a half stars. Now, granted, like, I know that I there was something a bit more that I did enjoy than Uncut Gems. I think it was only because, I don't know, they, they are two, I feel like I'm comparing two separate types of films from a technical mm. standpoint, right? Because you got an indie film and then you got a, you know, big, big budget film. Um, I gave mm -hmm. it 3.5 because at the same time, it... it it, it was great, and, and and the performance and everything was like was all like cohesive and, and working together. I think that there was certain elements of I don't know, like I, I wish 
a little bit more detailed background for me to kind of connect a bit more with the characters was there in terms of like how Julian was saying earlier, we don't know about their parents. We don't know about, you know, the relationship with the grandma. All that we know is that he broke her arm kind of thing, you know, and why mm-hmm. that happened kind of thing. So it's like those little details that, that kind of left me out of the loop a little bit of really engaging and, and, and connecting with the characters. Now, granted with, with Nick, um, uh, that, that Benny Safdie plays, like obviously being a disabled, uh, person, like you, you kind of already connect with that. You know, it, you have a lot of sympathy for that. And I've, and I've actually, um, helped disabled people and, and, and mentally challenged people. So like that, that I could like put aside, but with Robert Pattinson and, and his doings, I was like, you know, I want to, I want a little bit more motive behind that, I guess, just, just how his upbringing was, I guess, just a little more detail in that sense. So that's why I left it at 3.5. So that was me. Hmm. Got it. Got it. And I'll go next and then I think I'll let Julian close. Um, for me, I also give it a three and a half stars. The movie itself has its flaws, but what really does it for me is Rob Pattinson's performance mm. along with the, the gritty, um, I, I, I don't know how to describe the tone, but it, it's definitely gritty. Um, the camera movement, the colors, it all played together with the music in some sort of amazing, um, thrill ride. So I did really appreciate that. Um, Julian, what did you think? I'm going to give it a four because I actually had a lower grade on it originally, but I think that for me, I like that film and uncut gems equally Hmm. because I, and for me, it comes down to the performance of Rob Pattinson and then uh, the score. I just, I love the score so much and how it impacts me personally. Mm. Um, I think that uh, plot wise, um, Uncut Gems is stronger and more cohesive hmm. um, and just like those plot points that, that I also recognize as time went on with uh, Good Time started to fall apart kind of lose me a little bit but I still had a fun time and hmm. I just think that based on all the other kind of filmmaking aspects I, I, I think it's I put it right there with, with Uncut Gems nice hmm. wow very nice very nice so that was our review of Good Time. We are, we are going to go on a short break, and we will come right back with our favorite scores from the last decade, 2010 through 
All right, we are back from break and moving on into what I like to think is the main event of this episode. Yeah, yeah. We are going to be discussing our favorites original scores from movies uh, produced between 2010 and th- 2019. We decided to put this little list together in, in honor of our guest, uh, Julian. So starting with you, Will, what is your number five? My number five is Tron Soundtrack by Daft Punk. <laughs> Been a fan of DP for a while, and man, the soundtrack, not disappoint, dude. I think I really, I think it was really the heartbeat of the film, carrying the story, and and just personally, I was on a high on the soundtrack for like the next yeah. six months on repeat when it came out. So was I. <laughs> I I just it, it to think like wow. Um, DJs and and not to put any DJs down. Like I was like these DJs to create a soundtrack for a movie. I, I was like, I don't know what that sounds like. I don't even know what that looks like. I, you know, to me, it was always orchestral or, or you have bands, you know, involved or whatever. But, man, I think they were, like, the first ones that I can remember as as DJs to create a soundtrack for a film. And they blew me away hmm. completely. Hmm. So that was my favorite. Very nice. Great. Myron? Cool, cool. Uh, I'll go with my number five. Before I do that, though, um, I you know I always I always love to squeeze a few honorable mentions in here. Always, so Jeez. I will do that once again. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> oh, Zimmer. I definitely have some <laughs> <laughs> for sure. I, I bet Julian does. But for me, uh, Dunkirk is one is um, one honorable mention. Um, I didn't want to have Hans Zimmer on this list twice, though, so I just loved him right off the list. Secondly, is Mad Max Fury Road, composed by I, I believe his stage name is Junkie XL. Um, you know, yeah. the movie, the the visual I get from this is that guy with the electric guitar with flame coming out of it, and I think that the score kind of gives me that image as well. It makes me feel the same way that that image does. So those are my two honorable mentions. My number five score of the decade is the Avengers original score, composed by Alan Silvestri. think that the avengers is going to be when we look back on it the star wars of the 70s and the 80s and when that score kicks in that main theme i just get pumped up and i never get tired of it um 
when my wife and I are uh, Disney annual pass holders, and whenever we go to California Adventure and we walk by that that little studio kind of backlotty area where the Marvel characters are, um, this theme is playing on repeat over and over and over again, and I never get tired of it. Can you give us an um, acapella like sample? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> should we all do acapella samples? No, <laughs> no. no. That. <laughs> so that is my number five, and moving on to Julian's number five. Well, okay, so I have. These decisions are really hard. I've spent the last couple of days like legitimately like <laughs> thinking hard about this because uh-huh. there's, you know, it's like, um, I'll, I'll say this. I've never been a huge soundtrack guy as far as listening to soundtracks like on repeat, mm. like how I know so many people I work with are so many directors and filmmakers. It's like all they listen to soundtracks. And I've never been that guy. I, I really love getting inspiration from other music. Um, and I think that's because I was never classically trained. I never went to school to be a film composer. I'm just a lover of music and I like making it. So, um, so I guess these decisions were based off of the impact that these scores had on me personally, like as far as how much I really did listen to them and how much they actually influenced my career as a, as a composer. Hmm. And then the third thing is how, uh, how many times those scores were sent to me as temp <laughs> Where, for inspiration because a lot of these uh, s- filmmakers love these scores as well. So um, I'll real quickly do some honorable mentions. Um, Drive, Cliff Martinez, oh, just yeah. phenomenal score. Yeah. But a lot of the parts I love about that score weren't even written by him. It's the actual songs hmm. um, that were on there, like the Nightcrawler. Oh, yeah. Um, Night Call by Kavinsky. Like that song was, I think, more iconic than the score itself. But I mm-hmm. love the score by, by Cliff Martinez. Um, Mad Max by Junkie XL, just like you, Myron. So good. Mm-hmm. Up by Michael Giacchino. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was just, yeah. uh, as far as whimsical and from a compositional point of view, just flawless. And then Black Panther by Ludwig. I think that that really pushed forward the genre. I think that um, his background um, was just, inc- I think it's a really iconic score he presented. And I think he used the vocals and the African sounds just so perfectly. So mm. those are my honorable mentions. Good old Ludwig. Um, and then, yeah, real quick to go to my number five um, uh, Tron. It is Tron, hey. just like you will. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's just still to this day the number one reference score. Really? Um, but I personally love it. I mean, I literally like tear that album apart for years, just like listening to it and dissecting it and um the combination of orchestral and electronic music was game changing i think um and then it's just again a very effective score you know mm-hmm. derised son of flynn the mm-hmm. grid fall all of those cues i think really um affected me as a composer and and, and uh those are also the, the top four that have still to this day getting mm. sent to me so <laughs> anyway so rightfully cool. so uh, popcorn will for uh number four Number four, I chose The Peanut Butter Falcon uh, by Zachary Dawes, uh, Noam uh, Pikelny. I'm sorry if I butcher the name. 
and Jonathan Setoff and uh, Gabby Witcher. Obviously, it was a mixture of the composer and then and also the bands that were involved to really bring this uh, film together. I think that the, it works. The soundtrack works so well with this film. I love the folk and ethereal rhythms, um, uh, as as it helped basically serve the characters and the places they were going. Um, I think the cues were also like what were well placed to enhance the scene and make it more memorable. Then, when like basically those moments, like when you hear it, like those visuals come to mind kind of thing. So they really, I feel like they really marked that down really well. Um, and, and I know that it was interesting because once I wrote that down, I was looking up the directors like behind the scenes of like where his inspiration of this music came from. And surprisingly, like, yeah, the, the music that he was choosing was to serve the characters. And I thought that was so interesting because it, it felt like that every character kind of had their own sound to, to kind of represent who they are. In, in that film and I thought that that's freaking brilliant like that is so cool uh, to see that mm. so that was my number five and you know I love folk music too folk's cool Just, yeah yeah <laughs> what about your number four okay. Myron unfortunately I hate to sound like a broken record but my number four was Tron Legacy by Daft Punk can't get away um, no, I, no. Yeah. originally I was like what they're gonna do an original score uh okay but then yeah Julian said it it was the mix of um techno beats with a classical orchestra that just melded so well um and here's the thing i normally associate really great scores with really great movies it's rare that i think oh that score was great but the movie um uh, wasn't so good and i have to honestly say that tron legacy was an okay fun movie um visually stunning um felt a little empty though but at the same time the score really did stick, stick out to me um you mentioned derezzed and i remember watching that action scene specifically with like michael sheen with that little cameo part in that big fight scene when that when that that music kicks in that was great and the end credits scene which incorporates the original tron score with like a techno beat kind of going on at the same time i i love 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 listening to that That is my sorry. Yeah, exactly like that. Will <laughs> that was my number four, uh, and going on to Julian's number four. All right, so my number four is Interstellar by Hans Zimmer. Oh.
not the maybe the obvious choice for a lot of people would be Inception, which is also incredible. But Interstellar for me, I think it was so unique. His use of the organ, uh, it took you somewhere else. And I just thought that the main motif, the just the 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 sound that 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 Zimmer created really really just resonated with me. Um, and then there's a couple cues that really stood out, hmm. and it was the cornfield chase, um, which is kind of that cue that leads up to to them blasting off. Um, there's another one called Stay, one called Mountains, and then there's uh, one called Coward. And those those scores, those cues, just um, yeah, they just like kind of blew my mind because at, at that point, I'm trying to remember when the movie came out. Was it like 2015? Yeah, 16, something right. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm already like, you know, five, six years into my career, like really as, you know, a composer. Um, so at that point, I'm listening to these scores very differently. And the thing that I took away the most from it was just the sound, like having an instrument be kind of part of the sound mm-hmm. as opposed to like a mishmatch of instruments that. So when this when this score came out, it really kind of taught me to just kind of do less is more, you know, like mm-hmm. Zimmer used that organ and that yeah. organ was so effective in creating the environment for that film. So ever since that point, I've always kind of tried to stick with just a few sounds as opposed to whatever works, you know, and I think that, you know, he, that film particularly helped grow me into, I think more of a mature, it's almost like a level up, you know, mm-hmm. just from listening to that score and um, kind of digesting it over the last couple of years. Wow. Solid number four for me. Yeah. All right. I think you're going to be seeing that on my list in the in a little bit as well. <laughs> so Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, Will, your turn. Well, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to Hans Zimmer because uh, my number three is Inception. I mean, what can you say though about Hans Zimmer, but that his work has presented a legacy of greatness, obviously. I think the innovation of sound, as you already stated with Interstellar, you said, um, Julian, he brought into this film of Inception, especially the Inception horn. You know, everyone knows that, bah, like, yeah. that the just, became, sound. That yeah. just became right. iconic. And, mm-hmm. uh, man, was it just so well-placed. I, I don't know, that, that, that entire soundtrack for me i, I thoroughly enjoyed yeah. it i have to interject real quick just to say that sound so the guy who actually created that so the brahm that you're talking about started from christopher nolan telling hans zimmer i have this dream or he had some sound in his head or something of like a, a thousand brass horns like just screaming at the same time in unison so then hans zimmer um his his sample designer, so basically his main sound designer was a guy named Sam Estes. And so he tasked Sam Estes for basically helping pull off that whole sound. That is and wild. And Sam Estes is the one who trained me. Oh, uh, wow. In 2013, I went and worked for Sam Estes for, uh, for actually, 
I worked for him for uh, about six months, and then after working for him, I was hit up by so many um, kind of like music technology companies because they're like, oh my God, like you can sound design. And, and so he really, like that guy and that particular sound is like a huge part of my career in just like helping provide for me and my family and getting me through all those years of mm. that like kind of beginning of my career. And uh, so I owe a lot to that sound. So maybe I should put Inception further up there, but <laughs> but it's so good. It really yeah. is. Thank you it's to really the brass really horns, good. man. That's crazy yeah. how it came yeah. to a dream. It all started with, yeah. you know, a dream. I from think Fisher it's a dream. Horn. Don't don't hold me to it. Yeah. But I remember he came. It was like something in his in his head for sure. All right. I think it's my turn next. Uh, my number three is Drive uh, by Cliff Martinez. I think the score itself might have been slightly inconsistent and I think I might be confusing some of the songs as part of the score and I think you kind of mentioned that as, as well Julian but man that opening scene when Gosling is the the driver for that the opening driver, getaway so good yeah so good it's um it goes along with his character perfectly because at the beginning he's mm -hmm. cold calculating like almost feels no emotion he's ruthless and doesn't say anything but the the track itself is like metallic and cold and percussive and driving and relentless um, but it doesn't get too fast it's slow and it's kind of methodical in its in its uh, tempo so i felt like that opening was perfect for him it let us totally. know what he was about and it also fits perfectly with uh, kind of what's happening so that is, that theme is what really sticks out and you know i bought that album i would listen to it all the time as well so that yeah. is my number three i love it that's yep. kind of uh that opening cue is just magic yeah so good. I, that that one really like instilled in me like a love for electronic music and i was also like given drive as temp for so many years um, <laughs> yeah yeah but it's um, so good so what's your number three uh, okay Julie? so for me my number three is sicario mm. by johan johansson he passed a few years ago um i'm still not sure if the reason why was made public i'm not sure and i don't personally know what it is so i won't speculate but he uh certainly passed way before his time yeah um he was just coming into it man and so yeah. so sad yeah he directed um, uh, or he composed a, a score for mandy with nick cage i think that was his last work i've been meaning to watch that have you had a chance to see yeah. that one no, I haven't, but okay. I've listened to it, and it's a yeah. great score. Yeah. Um, he actually scored 2049, the Blade Runner reboot. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Or sequel. Yeah. And oh, then nice. he was kicked off it, and then Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Wallfish came on to basically do the score. Interesting. But he had scored, I think, most of the film or something like that at wow. that point, huge chunks of the film. And uh, he passed not too long after that. So wow. that was really, really sad. I would have loved to have heard his score for that. Hmm. 
So I don't know what happened there. That's kind of uh, maybe another conversation, just the business behind um, yeah. music. Because he, he did a rival as well for Denis Villeneuve. He so did. It's very yep. interesting. Maybe they had a falling out or something. I don't know. There, it, it feels like it was some studio move, just knowing how things go. But whatever. I don't want to yeah. speculate. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, that score just like blew my mind. And particularly The Beast, the cue The Beast um, it was, you know, that cue has this kind of pulsing drum sound design thing that like really intrigued me when I listened to it. And then you have these like um, detuning, basically they're, they're a bunch of cellos starting at one note and sliding to a different note and it just creating this haunting sound. And um, I think that that alone, just that cue alone, just like really grew my brain and just kind of helped me look even further outside the box as far as integrating. And I think a lot of my sound is, is the electronic sound design mixed with um, the orchestral. So like hearing that cue really kind of opened my mind mm. um, a lot. And um, it's just such a great, well-balanced cue mm. or, mm. Or, or score just mm. overall. Cool. Agree. Popcorn... Right. Uh, Popcorn will. Popcorn me. <laughs> All right. Number two. My number two is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse by Daniel Pemberton. Okay, for such a fun film, the score matched just as fun. I think Pemberton was well-versed in finding the right sound for such an iconic superhero animated film. Uh, right. I thoroughly enjoyed the music he created for Miles Morales, creating like an individuality for his character throughout the film. And I think his choice for hip-hop and electronic synths also combined so well with his orchestral compositions. It was like... What yeah. the heck? Mm. Like these are some interesting combinations and amazing hybrids. I, I was just really just uh, engaged in in just that in those in his music. So loved it. Popcorn Myron number two. <laughs> All right, my number two, and this was said earlier, is Interstellar by Hans Zimmer. For me, it was all about the church organ. Um, yeah. I thought the movie was ambitious and ballsy in the themes that it tries to convey. If you're tackling, if you're tackling science, religion, and love all in a popcorn flick, um, that's really grasping for something. It's like trying to dunk a basketball on a 15-foot hoop. And to me, I think he he got away with it. I think he succeeded. Nolan did. Um, and I think one of the main reasons why he accomplishes what he's trying to accomplish is the way the score makes you feel. When you hear uh, church music, you know you think of religion. You think of 
God, who is you know, supposedly eternal and uh, well, is eternal and, you know, um, kind of outside of time. And I feel like that. And also, when you think of God, you think of the way he makes you feel. Sometimes it makes you feel happy. Sometimes so for some people may be angry. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of feelings come out from when you hear a church or organ. So I think seeing a ship in space, seeing a black hole, seeing how this movie deals with time um, and hearing a, a church music behind that, mm-hmm. it's an odd combination yet it pairs so perfectly and yeah. it kind of is that that i think the 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 thing that weaves all of those themes together and why it succeeds um and it's just right. so emotional and just so haunting and otherworldly and yet so deep um and to me like every time i hear that that church organ i'm like oh i i, I feel like i felt when i was watching that movie for the first time so oh man yeah it's truly really the power of that score just that organ man absolutely yeah i think uh in the making of i um i might i I don't think this is wrong but i believe he looked all older over all over um for like the oldest church organ that he could find and he was looking for a very specific sound he was talking about how they all sound different and stuff like that but yeah uh that was really really cool and to watch the guy play the organ and play those themes in a church setting it sounds very natural but when you pair that with outer space and all of a sudden feels very exotic and otherworldly which is so cool so yeah yeah i think it's like the juxtaposition of like familiar with unfamiliar like that's how i felt yes like Uh it's like oh it's a familiar sound but i'm in an unfamiliar i'm looking at something unfamiliar yeah and yeah i think like for people in the west you know our history is so built upon not even the west it's the whole world i feel like has just been impacted by like the 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 organ yeah for <laughs> and sure. like yeah. like for the last like 2000 year or however long that instrument has been around you mm-hmm. know it's just like uh it's so good mm. so yes. effective and so what a effective. challenge it must be you know when it comes to otherworldly and, and, and outer space and whatnot and to try to think of sounds that that kind yeah. of give that presence so. You know, he he does this thing where he incorporates weird sounds into his scores. And I remember I was watching how they made The Dark Knight. And he says he used like an electric guitar in really weird ways. Like every time the Joker would show up, I think he sampled the sound of an electric guitar string with like a certain right. amount of distortion. And then the, right. as the tension of the scene increased, the tension on that string increased. And it was just so interesting to see a man at the top of his craft always trying to uh, innovate and try new things uh, and as a creative that that kind of just blew me away yeah that's the exact same thing that's like the reason i kind of kept pushing forward with sound design is just mm. like all the possibilities that are from taking something different not something from the computer not something that like is preset and just like going for it and the effect that that has emotionally on people i mean it's mm. like you would never even if you like you're impacted by those sounds not knowing how they were created, but you know, it's like I I feel like there's some weird like, um, uh, weird contrast or weird weird link between like the the person writing the music, going those extra lengths, and then its effect on the people. You know, yeah. It's I don't know what it is, and maybe it's just different. I I, I can't I couldn't tell you, but there's just something magical about doing that, and I learned a lot from from Zimmer scores that way and from mm. the guy who actually I think created that same guitar helped create those sampled guitar sounds and stuff mm-hmm. for Zimmer yeah for uh for Dark Knight but mm-hmm. um 
All right. So I think, yeah, uh, yeah now we are moving on to your number two choice. Julian. My number two is, and I'm curious if you guys have ever heard this or seen this movie, You Were Never Really Here. Uh, yes, Joaquin. With jo- Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. That score by Johnny Greenwood is just a powerhouse. Yeah. It's so unique. I don't know if you can think of it right now or what, but it is like, for me, the I'm also a huge Radiohead fan. Mm-hmm. I think they might be my favorite band. So when Johnny Greenwood scored There Will Be Blood, like that, that was another kind of, I think that film was one of the films that pushed me towards being a composer. So then... 10 years later when he does You Were Never Really Here and just his integration of that electronic and orchestral and just like the funky way that he like put together sounds. I don't think there's any score like it. It's Hmm. truly one of a kind. And uh, I I just, I would make it my number one, except I listen to my number one way more than this score. (laughs) But I still still think that this score, as far as creatively, it's just like the tip of the top for me. And uh, how Johnny Greenwood utilizes all the different instruments, all yeah. the nuances that it's esoteric, it's it's out of the box, it's haunting, it's electronic and orchestral at the same time. Wow! And I'm gonna shout out uh, Tree Synthesizers and Sandy's Necklace, and another one called Dark Streets as being just the cues that really that you guys need to listen to, and I think you'll you'll kind of get what I'm saying. Okay. We'll do. Yeah, it's been a while since I saw this. I saw it on Prime a while back. Um, I'm going to definitely need to rewatch and uh, listen yep. to the score. All right. So number one. Number, number one. one's baby. All right. Well, my number one pick is Grand Budapest Hotel by Alexandre uh, Desplat. It's good. And oh, yeah. It's really good. For most of Wes Anderson films, you know, they just, for me at least, they just almost never disappoint. I love soundtracks that have eccentric sounds and and nostalgic European influences. Uh, I think this plot displayed his music with such a fun, quirky, dark, comedic cadence. Uh, his mixture from acapella hymnals to orchestral horns and strings reminded me like another... Um, Another uh, favorite of mine, Jan uh, Tiersen, who has composed many of Jean-Pierre Jeunet's films, a director who I also very much admire, uh, where as the story progresses, you, like, you can't help but to nod along as it travels to the next scene. It's just this nice kind of like bouncy music, that, that, uh, that European bouncy music that kind of helps you go along. Like you, you can't also but to make up a scene when you listen to the soundtrack in your car and apply it to the outside world and make up characters of people who you're like stuck in traffic with or at an intersection. Like it's so funny. Like when I was listening to 
like um, to to Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, the soundtrack, I, I literally would just, you know, uh, just look at people and, and kind of go with the bounce of the music and just like imagine these things going on, like and just making making scenes in my mind. It was, I, I it, it's just so fun to listen to, and, and I don't know, it just gives me all the good feels, it, it, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's such even a great. Uh, uh, music to listen to in the morning and I'm not a morning mm-hmm. person but that will brighten my day you know get me woken up kind of thing you know it's gonna be a good day kind of thing kind of feel all right great choice Myron your number one my number one film is uh or my number one score is The Social Network by Trent Reznor <laughs> and Atticus Ross which I same. Had a yeah, I know. that's so funny <laughs> I have the same buddy hey. yeah and so hey. let me tell you why I love this, this score so much. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, his character is a, a strange one because you're supposed to relate to him and understand him. Yet at the same time, you feel distant and uh, you feel like he's emanating this, this solo sort of cold aura, like he's not going to let you in. So this score does a long way of getting you to feel what he's feeling. And also it kind of conveys a certain distance and coldness. scene there's no music it's that uh bar scene and then after uh rooney mara breaks up with uh jesse eisenberg and jesse's walking home uh that hand, movie hand covers bruise yes yes that track kicks mm-hmm. in and it's you almost feel it before you hear it and yep. just the title of the track is like oh uh, i'm hurt but i'm not gonna let anyone see it type thing um and that's that event is what drives all of his actions both you know good actions and flawed actions throughout the movie and then right after that when he starts coming up with a hot or not uh, website and then that fast percussive track kicks in which is yep. uh, which i love and then also track two. Yeah, yeah sorry i'm, I'm just geeking out because i've listened to this soundtrack so many times when they start showing <laughs> when they start showing all the different um i forget what they're called the clubs the uh-huh uh, so yeah fraternities shows, or whatever yeah, I forgot right? what they were called. Yeah, when they're showing the frat parties, and then that that almost like a punk rock track comes in. <laughs> I love right. that too. And then yeah. also uh, just w- when uh, they're in the rowing scene, and then they play that like a version of in the Hall of the Mountain King, and it's like on tr- on crack, and it sounds like it came out of like a eight bit Nintendo game. Yet it sounds too you know yeah. <laughs> amazing to have come from something like that. All of that yeah. is is why uh, it is on my list as number one, and I think it's number one of the decade. I think it's number one of the century so far, and honestly, I think it's number not top ten, maybe top five on my list of all time. And just right. on a side note, I have to tell you guys how angry I still am that this movie didn't win Best Picture because Harvey Weinstein, for the second time, stole the Best Picture trophy. The first time he did it was Shakespeare in Love, when he stole it from Saving Private Ryan, and, the, and this this was the year he stole it with the King's Speech and stole it from uh, 
the social network. So wow. that is my number one. And I had to take a jab at Harvey before I finished up here. So <laughs> take all the jabs you want, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah. But then uh, I, I think we'll still be talking about this score when I uh, hand the baton over to you. Um, Julian, what is your number yes. one film? Yeah, it is. Uh, it was very easy. It's the social network. And for me, it was um, the first score at 2010 is when I really um, like went for it, like as a composer. That was the year that I just was like, this is what I'm going to do. I think I'm I think this is it. And so I went I was transitioning out of being in, in bands and wanting to do the whole, you know, band thing. And uh, when I heard that, when I saw that movie and Hand Covers Bruise came on, it was the first time I ever fell in love with a piece of film music like that. the first time because I had at that point I had enough like understanding and I'd done a few film like score things it was the first time that I, I knew enough about the making of films and the impact of the score makes and then just the process of creating a film score so like when I first heard that cue hand covers bruise and he starts running home like it was just I don't know it was just like all the lights turned on in my brain Hmm. and in my heart and it was just like this is what i got to do and, and i fell in love with that's that great. score hmm. and i think that's that that cue particularly but then yeah like you know cue number two is in motion the one that you were yes. talking about mm-hmm. like you know it got that like just basically really simple kick and then you have the all the other synths going on so um in a weird way and it's funny to reflect on it now which i've been kind of doing the last couple of days like that my sound really stems a lot from the social network and um, I'm very grateful that I get hired to do a lot of this kind of stuff hmm. because I know a lot of guys who get stuck doing, I mean, they're not stuck. I won't say they're stuck, but like they get kind of pigeonholed with a sound that maybe they don't really like. Uh, a lot of the guys just, just do orchestral. That's all they do. Um, some guys just do horror. You know, some guys just get, you know, do a lot of comedy stuff. Mm-hmm. But I've luckily been able to do and work on a lot of projects that are similar to social network and similar to the scores that are even the, the Safdie brothers, you know, that David LaPayton does, you know, like, mm-hmm. so when I hear those kinds of things that really inspire me, you know, I get so excited and I, I'm so happy that I get to work on that kind of stuff. So, um, but like it all stems from the social network. And I think it might be the most important score for me in my whole of all time. Wow. I'm not sure. Wow. I'm not sure, but but I would say that nothing had nothing carries that emotional weight with me. Hmm. Like I could say Star Wars, brilliant. Like there's no way around it. Like it's 
possibly the best score of all time, right? But from an emotional impact, like this movie has a greater impact on my life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because of what I do, like choosing these scores are so such a big deal for me because they legitimately impact my income. They legitimately <laughs> impact like how I provide for my family mm-hmm. and uh, how I've shaped and built my career to this point. So of all that, man, social network, it just it wins. Yes. <laughs> wins the prize. It's <laughs> freaking amazing, dude. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I love I'm, that. I'm, a lot. I'm so glad. I love um, how, uh, Julian, you kind of talked about your personal experiences with each of these tracks, uh, that uh, each of these scores. It's really kind of great to hear your story through your list. I think that was really, uh, that, that was really cool. Mm. So, uh, what a great, what a fun thing to get to talk about. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to boil them down, though, right? Like, it there's is. so many great scores. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even our honorable mentions, I could, you know, keep going on that. But even in that, there's just, God, it's so hard to to narrow it down. There's so many great, so much great music out there. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Julian, thank you so much for coming on our show. You have to let us know when that part of your website is up and running. Uh, Of course. Yeah, we'll give you a shout out. um, Thank you. uh, Thank you so much. Of course, of course. And uh, I would love to hear your stuff as well. I've only heard a small sampling of it, but would love to hear more. It's freaking incredible. Um, Of course. Yeah, we loved uh, hearing your insights. We appreciate your time. Uh, Just thank you so much. And uh, thank you, Will, for bringing them on. Heck yeah, dude. Hopefully we can bring it back uh-huh. on for another yeah. one. So Thank you for having me on, guys. Heck Such course, an honor. Of, of course. All right. So that's it for our show today. We'll be coming back next week. Thank you for tuning in. We'll Thank see you, you later. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.